It's a little bit like a Ponzi scheme. If you begin by committing fraud, you've got to continue committing fraud. And that's exactly what he had to do. So how do you commit fraud? One of the ways you commit fraud, one of the easiest ways to boost your earnings is to inflate your inventory. You know, it's not known to most lay people. It certainly wasn't known to the people in the warehouses and crazy Eddie. But if you increase your inventories, if you inflate your inventories, you're inflating profits. I'm Chris Hill, and that's author Gary Weiss. Before Theranos and before Enron, there was Crazy Eddie, a chain of consumer electronics stores throughout the Northeast founded by Eddie Antar. The business went public in 1984, and within two years, the stock was up more than nine times in value. But the good times didn't last because Eddie Antar was boosting his company's margins and profit growth with fraud. Ricky Mulvey caught up with Gary Weiss to get the background on one of the most colorful stock scams of all time, which Weiss details in his new book, Retail Gangster, the insane real-life story of Crazy Eddie. Joining us now is Gary Weiss. He's the author of Retail Gangster, the insane real-life story of Crazy Eddie. Uh, thanks for being here. My pleasure. My pleasure entirely. Let's get into it. Before Eddie Antar started one of the more well-known stock scams, uh, he was working in clip joints in, in Times Square, where he was selling overpriced gizmos and electronics to the tourists there. Uh, what was his experience there like, and how did that experience uh, shape Eddie's attitude toward business and interacting with investors? Yeah, well, uh, well, first of all, thanks for ha very much for having me. I really appreciate this. Looking forward to talking to you guys. Those clip joints, I think there might still be a few left uh, in, in Times Square, you know, they were, they were like filled with, uh, you know, you go, you walk past and you know, I got these windows filled with all these cameras and gadgets and so forth. And you go in and what you find is that they're, uh, they're selling you products grossly, grossly overpriced. Now, Eddie was taught to rip off people essentially in these clip joints. And uh, that, and not, and the, the art of ripping off someone and really overcharging them. This was this art was perfected at these Times Square stores. Uh, you know, you really have to have to be good at selling in order to sell someone. You know, a sixty dollar camera for uh, you know for four hundred dollars. You know, you have to be really good. You have to really know what to do. So you know, you go into one of these stores. At least in the old days, you go into one of these stores. And they jump on you, and they they con you, and they lie to you. And this is this is how Eddie learned salesmanship, and this is sort of what he inculcated in his stores. Except, of course, they didn't they weren't quite that bad, you know. They didn't rip off people quite the way he did in Times Square. But that's where he learned salesmanship. And for Eddie, was there any difference for him between a, a Wall Street analyst who's look, looking at the IPO, considering uh, recommending the company, and, and a tourist who was in those Times Square stores? Uh, yeah, I think maybe the Wall Street analysts were stupider, you know, and they also maybe had had uh, you know more reason to you know to be skeptical than the uh, tourists wandering in, you know, after they were trained supposedly to sniff out fraud, and they just swallowed whole the, the lies that he fed to them, you know, in in the run up to the to the IPO, which was a which was a work of art in the stock fraud, and, and afterwards we just continually cooked the books to elevate the stock price. 
At the heart of this is a company that did make some amount of money. It was a chain of electronics stores throughout the the New York area or the tri-state area up in the Northeast. And I know you've never stepped foot in a, in a crazy Eddie store, but you walk through the customer experience and in, in the book. So what 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 was it like for someone who wanted to go, let's say, buy a, a microwave or a television? Maybe saw a commercial on television and then uh, walked into a crazy Eddie store. Yeah. Well, Eddie, uh, well, Eddie personally, later is one of his salesmen, he, he, he'd jump on you. Their, their philosophy was, you know, you walk in the store, you're not to leave without buying something, you know, NAD, nail at the door. So you go in, you're looking for like a, a Sony stereo. He might have advertised uh, in the Village Voice, one of his other places. And he would want to sell you not the higher priced Sony, but a lower priced stereo which provides him with a higher markup, which he would manipulate uh, in order to make maximum money. So it didn't look to the customer necessarily like bait and switch, because usually bait and switch is, you know, hey, you're trying to sell somebody something that was is more expensive. You try to sell you something that was less expensive, but it was still basically the same principle. Customer walks in looking for an advertised product and he walks away with something else. And that was that was the big big con game with Crazy Eddie. That was the big switch that they pulled. It was a big switch game. Uh, and it, it was out from the beginning to the end. That was one of them. There could be a case, let's say I'm looking for uh, a Sony television, and then mm -hmm. I hear my salesperson is going out to lunch. What's yeah. really going on? Right. Well, as I said, you know, the, the, you know, the switch was, was, was the main thing. But let's say you were really a tough customer, and you, you, you said, I want that Sony. I want it. I came in for that Sony. I'm going to get it. You know, you're one of these educated consumers. You know, you're not going to be switched. So, you, so if, if they would sell it, you know, look, if it's in stock, they're going to sell it here. There's actually a chance that it's going to be out of stock because, you know, everybody wants a Sony. You know, a lot of people want the Sony. So you might hear somebody say, well, you know, let's go out of lunch. You know, we've got to go to lunch. What happened was that was like a code word. If they go into the back, they take a table model or a, a model that was returned because it wasn't all that great, it was maybe defective, and they polish it off and they put it back in its original packaging. The tools were kept in a bag called the lunch bag. You know, it looked like a lunch bag. And they'd bring it out and they'd say, okay, here it is. And actually they were selling you a used and possibly even defective product. That was known as the lunch process. And the way that he was able to beat competitors at that time was simply skimming the sales tax. So he would mm -hmm. charge customer uh, the, the stores would charge customers sales tax for the products, and then return nothing to the IRS. I understand that this was a period where where crime was relatively rampant in New York, but how was the IRS not hip to this? This seems like the one institution you really wouldn't want to mess with. Yeah, well, it wasn't just the IRS; it was also the New York State tax authorities too. You know, they were supposed to be collecting sales tax on all these purchases, and of course, they'd send some money over to the New York State sales tax authorities, but the majority of it was not sent. You know, you are charge you charge like say two hundred dollars; you're supposed to be getting two hundred two hundred dollars plus say a fourteen dollars sales tax, okay, on a particular item. The fourteen dollars sales tax was not sent to the state taxing authorities. It was sort of was a built-in profit cushion for Eddie. And this $14 was used to enable Eddie to actually charge less than sometimes on the wholesale price. You know, so he was able to charge less, cut his prices by simply swindling the um, swindling the customer, was basically lying to the customer that he was collecting sales tax, you know, he's given and 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 committing tax fraud. And he was never caught for it, you know, never caught for it. 
So if, if if this is going so well for 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 him, the business, Sammy Antar as well, why go public? Why open? Why take the risk of opening your books to more to more investors when you have a you have a perfectly good crime going? Yeah. Well, they 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 just wanted to make more money. You know, the way to make money uh, after all of your if you're you know you're, you're if you're in business is to uh, you know certainly in those days when the IPO boom was just beginning was to sell stock to the public. You know, they correctly gauged, you know, that the market for, uh, you know, electronic stores, that there'd be a market for electronics. It was very hot in those days. You know, nowadays you think, oh, my God, electronics, dude, who's going to buy stock in the electronics? It was very hot in those days. It was the big thing. It was like Bitcoin, you know. It was a 1980s equivalent of, of Bitcoin, one of these other crappy things that they're selling, AMC, whatever. So uh, they decided, look, we're going to go public, and Sammy Antar... The financial wizard, the cousin, Eddie Antar's cousin, Sammy Antar, came up with a terrific idea to make that IPO really shine. Came up with a great idea. And, and that idea was simply reducing the skim, right? And that idea was to reduce the skim. What he decided, look, you know, they, were, they were taking money out of the company, see? They were taking money out of the company, taking money out to avoid paying taxes. So he was saying, look, you're shooting yourself in the foot, guys. You're shooting yourself in the foot. You're taking money out of your profits, but you want more profits. You want profit growth in order to really entice investors. So take money out of the company in less and less quantities to make it seem as if you're really growing. And it was a brilliant idea. They had 2% profit growth in, I think, 1983, 84. They expanded that to 48%. 48% profit growth. I mean, it, was, it was ridiculous. But because of the reduction of the skin, they were able to do it. And they got a great underwriter. They got Oppenheimer. They got Wall Street behind them. Ah, they were off to the races at that point. One of the ways that most people know about Crazy Eddie was from uh, the advertising, the commercials, the famous Jerry Carroll screams. We have an example of those. And uh, this is the only time we'll do free advertising on the show. It's a Crazy Eddie blowout blitz! Crazy Eddie's not playing with a full deck because he's practically giving away TVs, VCRs, microwave ovens, stereo rack systems, video camcorders, anything and everything in home entertainment, and lots of home appliances, too. Remember, we are not undersold, we will not be undersold, we cannot be undersold, and we mean it! It's a Crazy Eddie blowout blitz, and Crazy Eddie's going nuts with his lowest sale prices ever! See, Crazy Eddie now, his blowout blitz sale prices are... Gary, what did these what what did these crazy fast talking commercials mean for the company? That's how most people knew the knew the business, right? Oh sure, I mean look, I mean these 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 commercials are just terrific, you know. I mean to this day people remember them, you know. And in those days they drove people into the stores, you know. People didn't necessarily like the commercials. They didn't necessarily like being bombarded with these commercials day in and day out and day in. But nevertheless, it made people curious about Crazy Eddie. And you know, it drove into their minds the idea that you're going to get the cheapest prices at Crazy Eddie. So it really drove sales for the company and it made them expand and expand and expand. By the you know, at their peak, they had 43 electronic stores. That'd be unheard of today. The 43 electronic stores in the Northeast from Philadelphia up into Massachusetts. It was all because of Jerry Carroll, that guy in the commercials. Terrific, terrific guy. And and there's a couple of hallmarks of, of the commercials that I found interesting. The first of which is that there while while there's a lot of fast talking about low prices, uh, they never promised a specific deal. Mm. Was that deliberate? 
Well, yeah. I mean, you know, they were promising the uh, the idea that you know you 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 know they're playing off everybody else's prices. You know, you you bring in their prices, and we'll beat it. So they lost. So the competitors lost the credibility of their pricing, and they hated Crazy Eddie for doing that. You know, because you know, no matter what we charge, he's going to beat them. Now, in actual in actual fact, he didn't beat them. Most people didn't want to negotiate. They didn't want to do all that. But nonetheless, that was their image. And you know, and they didn't really give customers the lowest prices necessarily. You know, most people didn't ask for. It. But nevertheless, it, it just it just really upended the whole world of electronics because you know in those days you know it was very hard to engage in in, in discounting because of the fair trade laws, and and Eddie Eddie surmounted them in various ways. He surmounted those fair trade laws, and and he did beat the competition. He did. Was there a point where the the novelty of these wore off? I mean, it's it one one of the the uh, ventures that I found particularly interesting is that they. Uh, the, the Crazy Eddie tried to have Jerry Carroll on for a full hour of that mm. that sort of fast talking delivery, which sounds first of all just exhausting, but second of all, uh, struck me as is a um, a point where the the effectiveness of just bombarding people with these fast talking yet memorable ads wore off. Yeah, well, they att- at one point they attempted to create a home shopping network. You know, that was very hot in the eighties. You know, home shopping network. They tried to create a, a crazy Eddie home shopping network with Eddie on for like constantly. They, the problem is he did, he couldn't ad lib that much, so they had to write every single word. It just didn't work. It didn't. It didn't work. You know, he was good for thirty seconds. Thirty seconds. So not all of Eddie's schemes were public knowledge during the IPO process that, that you talked about, except the bait and switch, which which was a little bit of a different method. Um, it's it's hard to guess though that that in a company is artificially boosting growth by by reducing its its cash skim. Um, so what did the public and particularly those Wall Street bankers know about about the bait and switch, and why didn't why didn't they really care? You think? Well, they didn't care for a couple of reasons. I mean, first of all, they just uh, they just figured, well, you know, if uh, if the state doesn't care, you know, there were very very rarely was were there consumer complaints against Crazy Eddie. You know, very, there was very little on the public record indicating that these were sleazeballs when it came to salesmen. So they just didn't care. They just, nah. You know, they used euphemisms. You know, Eddie used to use euphemisms in describing what they were doing, educating the consumer rather than you know uh, switching the consumer. So they didn't. They didn't really care. You know, their job was to sell stock. It was to bring in merchandise, meaning stock, meaning companies, and sell it. So that was the aim. It wasn't to you know to really get. You know, they're supposed to do due diligence. They still are. They're supposed to do due diligence, and they did due diligence, but they they were easily misled. And who the hell knows whether they really wanted to be misled because they. They did not ever determine that what was going on. They never really saw what was going on under the surface. How did Crazy Eddie court these Wall Street analysts? Um, my understanding is that he would take them on hour-long, like spend one-on-one time with them for hours, take them through the stores, take them out to dinner, and that had a huge effect on the the, the stock and reception of his company. Oh yeah, well Eddie was very good at one. He didn't like to appear. He didn't like to be interviewed. He never gave interviews, at least not at that point. He never gave interviews. He never never appeared. But he was actually very persuasive and very charming on a one-on-one basis. So he they hired a uh, a PR guy named Ed Colladin, who was an old 
time uh, Wall Street uh, PR guy. He did a wonderful job for them. And he would set up Eddie with these analysts and he'd take them on tours. Eddie would take them on tours of the store that they had on 57th Street, which was their showcase tour. And he'd go one-on-one on them. But, you know, the one-on-ones, as they call them, really charmed the pants off these these analysts. And it, and it, it led to... Uh, glowing analyst reports, not in these cheesy little investment banks, but in major investment banks. You know, uh, uh, Donaldson, Lufkin, and Ginnerette, which, you know, it, you know, is now nowadays it's known mainly for the for junk bonds or Michael Milton, but they had a very powerful equities uh, research component. And man, they, they were charmed. They charmed the hell out of those guys. Major analysts, major retailing analysts were completely bamboozled by it. Eddie's intense focus on his stock price kicked off a number of other scams as a public company, including bloating inventory numbers. Right. And at first, you may wonder, that's not like bloating your, your sales numbers. So, why was it in Eddie's interest? And, and, and Sam Antar, Sam E. Antar, excuse me, who's the CFO at the time, why was it in their interest to bloat the amount of inventory they had on the books? Well, everything went public. You know, they had to continue to to, to, to commit fraud. They had to, they, they they had to continue to elevate the stock price because Eddie was the biggest shareholder, and he wanted to get rid of his stock. He didn't want to hold his stock. You know, the company was garbage. They wanted to dump it. So, in order to do that, they had to keep on generating better and better and better in numbers because it's a little bit like a Ponzi scheme. If you begin by committing fraud, you've got to continue committing fraud, and that's exactly what he had to do. So, how do you commit fraud? One of the ways you commit fraud, one of the easiest ways to boost your earnings is to inflate your inventory. You know, it's not known to most lay people. It certainly wasn't known to the people in the warehouses and crazy Eddie. But if you increase your inventories, if you inflate your inventories, you're inflating profits because inventories are used, inventory levels are used to compute profits. I won't go into the mathematics now, but they are. It's really simple math, too. So. He'd call in the guys from the warehouse and say, look, we gotta, we got to boost the value of the profits. Uh, we got to boost the value of the warehouses. we got to boost what's in the warehouses. And he said, well, you know, why do we have to do this? You know what I mean? It doesn't seem necessary. He said, look, it's good for the company. Got to do it. So they did. And it boosted, it boosted the, um, it really boosted their profits. And it enabled Eddie to produce uh, phony sale, phony uh, financial statements and dump his stock. And the only thing that Eddie really couldn't lie about to investors was his stock sales, it seems. Yeah, that's right. Which he was, when the price of the Crazy Eddie stock went up, his PR representative would go to the press and say, we're still intensely focused on growth. And then there might be a little paragraph that, oh yeah, Eddie Antar sold millions of dollars worth of stock. Yeah. For for investors at the time, because I'm sympathetic, I'm sympathetic to them. You you want to believe what you read in an IPO document and, and they aren't necessarily fools. Was the insider selling really the only sign that you think a let's say a retail investor at the time could have picked up that something was awry? Well, the sales not well. For one thing, those 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 insane growth numbers were they seemed a little suspicious. You know, there was a, a a negative article before the IPO in Barron's. They actually did one of the very very few skeptical articles was in Barron's. They they, they looked at this. Um, at these numbers, and they said, well, and it was, it was sort of a skeptical article. They said, yeah, it's going to be very hard for them to sustain these numbers. You know, they did. Of course, they had no idea that there was any kind of fraud. But you know, there were there were certain red flags that were showing up, like like the excessive for the good 
too good to be true numbers. There, there was also self-dealing. There was constant self-dealing among the Antars, which had to be disclosed in the IPO and in the financial statements, which just didn't look good. It was legal, but it didn't look good. And there was a lot of like smoke, but there was no fire. You see. What kind of self-dealing? Oh, well, for instance, one of the things that Eddie did, you know, he established a medical school in the Caribbean. Oh, know? yes. As one of his side businesses. So here's a guy with a high school dropout, bright guy, but he's operating a medical school in the Caribbean with partners in the, in, in the Caribbean where the whole uh, the whole pitch was, you see, if you wanted to get into medical school and you didn't have the grades, well, come down to the Caribbean and, you know, we'll, we'll let you in. And it was a big scam, okay? But because he loaned money, because Crazy Eddie, the business, loaned money to his to his uh, uh, medical school venture, he had to disclose it. I mean, he didn't have to disclose it, but it would have been. You know, it was it, they, they couldn't take the risk. That let's let's disclose everything. They disclosed it. It was in the IPO, and it looked bad. Barons in their article in 1984, they they focused on this very comical little uh, little medical school in the Caribbean, uh, but it it, it didn't. It didn't bring down the whole company. It was just it was just a red flag. Yeah, you mentioned that uh, he hired uh, the, the administrator of the the medical school was essentially hired because he was loyal to Crazy Eddie, and that gave yeah. him the qualifications to run a, a medical school in the Caribbean. Yeah, well, they had a they had a, actually one of Eddie's pals was a uh, was a psychologist, was a licensed psychologist, but you know he wasn't a medical doctor. I mean, they didn't have any medical doctors on the faculty. Uh, they did have one of their guys who was actually a store manager down there in the Caribbean uh, to manage things, and eventually he had to bribe his way out of the country because they wanted to arrest them. You know, apparently they arrest people in the Caribbean if you owe money, and they would they had thrown him in jail. So he sent Sam E. Antars and his cousin down to the down to the Caribbean with a whole lot of cash, and they bribed everybody and got him out of there. Jeez. One of my favorite lines in the book is, uh, quote, the frauds were like hungry rattlesnakes that needed to be fed lest they strike and kill. You interviewed Sammy Antar extensively for the book, the CFO of Crazy Eddie. Was there a point where you, you th the, the frauds became too too much to contain? Was there a singular point where, at least for, for Sam, that th he realized there's really no turning back from this inventory scam? We started with a couple million dollars of, of, of lies, and now we're at 50 million. Well, one of the things that, that really nailed them at a certain point was comp store sales, you know, uh, because they were growing, you know, at, uh, investors would look on that, at, at, at the sales store by store, you know, are they growing because of expansion? Or are they growing because more people are coming in and buying stuff? Comp store sales. So they looked at the, at the sales of stores that were uh, that had been around for a while. So they had a boost. Comp store sales was lousy. I mean, everything was lousy. There was a lot of competition. People were coming in and they were competing with Eddie on price because you know he's going to open the door to competition on electronics. So there were all kinds of stores coming in and say, "Oh, we have the real lowest prices." So they, they they were being hammered by comp store sales, by, by by their competition around 1985 1986. So they had a boost comp store sales to do this. They had cash in Israel, okay, that they'd skimmed in previous years. They said, well, look, let's take this money that we got sitting there in, in the Caribbean. Let's bring it in. Let's stuff it into the cash registers of these older stores to boost our comp store sales. That became known as the Panama Pump. It was one of the more interesting. Um, instances of, of money laundering sort of going into reverse to prop up a company. Panama pump. They pumped in money from Israel through Panama. They thought, well, you know, if we if we go put it through Panama, nobody will notice. You know, they don't realize that, you know, bank secrecy isn't what it's what it's all cracked up to be. 
Um, they were eventually discovered. But anyway, they brought in this money and they threw it into the cash and they improved their constant sales, enabling Eddie to uh, cash out his stock. But they, they couldn't really continue doing this. It was just getting to be too big. There was too much fraud. So Eddie decided, I got to get out of here. I can't, I can't be here anymore. So he started uh, an exit strategy, you know. Uh, I got to get out of here. What am I going to do? Send his money to Israel. And he followed. He followed with fake identities and fake passports. And he made the mistake of um, assuming that Israel would be okay with um, lying about his identity. Yeah, yeah. Well, he set up... Uh, he said he gave a citizenship to a, a non-existent person, to a to an alias, which Israel didn't like. You know, setting up a uh, citizenship uh, uh, for an alias. You know, terrorists could do that. But you see, you know what got him overseas. You see, was that he was taken over. See, it didn't occur to them when they went public. It didn't occur to them that when you go public and you're selling stock to the to the public, that somebody can come and buy up all your stock kick you out. And then if they do that, and it's a fraudulent company, well, they're going to discover the fraud. And that's exactly what happened with, with Eddie. You know, they started to get interest, takeover interest, and sure enough, that's what was the catalyst. That was actually the catalyst that, that got Eddie out of the company and into Israel. This, you know, he knew that the, the volume of fraud was such, he was going to go to jail unless he, had, unless he got out of the company. But he messed up his uh, his flight to Israel. As you, as you point out, you know, he 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 uh, you know he he violated the law in Israel too, and, and the Israelis didn't like it. Something I found shocking about the the takeover candidates as well were that once they found out that there were some amount of fraud going on at the company, that still didn't dissuade them from wanting to take over the company. Yeah. Uh, it, it, Sam Antar basically told them like you you have no idea what kind of can of worms you're opening by trying to you don't want this company. And yet, even when they found an amount of fraud with with inventory levels, when they went in and, and looked at the books, that's they, they they were still interested in taking over this this kind of bum company. Well, they didn't really discover the inventory fraud until after they after the check cleared. Kind of, you know, yeah. they're all saying, you know, don't celebrate until the check cleared. Well, until after they bought the company, okay. And when I say they, I'm talking about smart guys. I'm talking about a fellow named Victor Palmieri. Now, he was one of the sharpest takeover people in the 1980s. Oh, he had he had puff pieces coming out of his ears. Believe you me, and this guy had some of the best publicity. He was a sharp dude. He took over the company in, in partnership with this fellow from Texas. And they took over. The uh, new CFO came in. You know, they threw out the old management. New CFO came in and they said, What the what is this going on here? They discovered. That there, that the that the inventories had been grossly, grossly inflated, and then it was all downhill from there. It was, they were done. One part that shocked me, surprised me, I should say, about um, Eddie Antar's trial when he had been brought back to the United States mm. um, out of Israel, is that none of the equity analysts who'd been duped by him showed up to testify. Yes, and these were some of the people who were. Uh, who were just fraud victims, and yet they didn't want to explain how they'd been duped. That's right. That's right. The prosecutor uh, went to all the guys who had, who had recommended the stock, and they said, look, you know, you were victimized by Eddie. He lied to you, so you relied on those lies, right? So, you know, let's testify. They said, no, 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 no. You don't get it, they said to him. We were selling the stock. That was our job. 
to sell stock, not to, you know, so we weren't misled by nothing. We, we, we saw that you, you, we can't testify to that. None of them would testify for the prosecution because the prosecution naive, well, for a time, naively believed that these guys were victims. They weren't victims. They were co-conspirators. And they admitted to it. They wouldn't testify. So they got some schlub. They got some low, they got some some little investor to testify that he bought the stock on the, you know, they had to get somebody, you see, to testify. So they got some little guy from New Jersey to testify. You know, I bought, I believed what I read. They couldn't get the pros to do that. They couldn't get the analysts to do that. The book, Retail Gangster, The Insane Real Life Story of Crazy Eddie, uh, I recommend it. It was a wild ride. I, I very much enjoyed it. And uh, thank you for joining us on Motley Fool Money, Gary Weiss. Oh, thank you. I enjoyed talking to you. Thanks very much. As always, people in the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow. Tomorrow.